Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are peeling back Hollywood's crypt to review John Waters' 2000 film Cecil B. Demented. We ain't got no budget. No budget. No craft service, man. No budget. We don't take no notes. No budget. No fucking call sheets, yo. No budget. <laughs> so I feel like right off the bat, it is important. Last episode, Pretty in Pink, we touched briefly on John Hughes and his contributions to 80s culture and cinema. And we said mm-hmm. that he was the most influential person we had come across for the show so far. Yeah. I, I would like to posit to you, Stephanie, John Waters is the most friggin' cult director we have seen so far and maybe we'll see on this list so much so that to the point when we were starting talking about this podcast you mentioned john waters and i said who and you said oh girl let me tell you (laughs) yeah i mean if you don't know the man uh he is beyond fascinating he he started working back in the 70s doing guerrilla filmmaking he's always pushed the boundaries of weird for weirdness sake he's i mean he's been an out and flamboyantly proud gay man since the 60s that alone takes some cojones mm-hmm. and yeah so i i had never heard of cecil be demented i know you had neither this was the first time for both of us I very much enjoyed this film, and I think it's kind of the perfect introduction to Waters. So I'm, I'm very happy this worked out this way. I'm very excited for this episode, Andy, because I think it's the first time we've disagreed on a movie. I think so. Like, fully on a, not just a moment of a movie, not just our interpretation of a character, but you liked this and hated the ending. I <laughs> thought it was okay, and loved the ending. Yeah, mom and dad are gonna fight, kids. <laughs> oh my gosh, does that mean we're married? As long as I'm mom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes more sense. <laughs> so, what is this movie about, Andy? Yeah, for those of you who uh, skipped the movie, didn't want to download Tubi TV and check it out. Um, Cecil B. Demented is a very unhinged and somewhat bizarre story of Honey Whitlock, an A-list Hollywood actress who is kidnapped by the psychotic guerrilla filmmaker Cecil B. Demented and his sycophantic film crew, The Sprocket Holes. Against her will, Honey is forced to star in Cecil's anti-Hollywood film until she joins his cause, all the while shooting, both literally and figuratively, their way throughout Baltimore. And this is weird. (laughs) Like I enjoyed this film, but I can totally agree. It's weird. That's, that's the interesting part. I wanted it to be weirder. I kept waiting for it to be weirder. Okay. And we can talk about this later, but I think my biggest beef with the movie was that it never bought, it never fully bought into its own shtick it felt kind of halfway committed. And I read the Wikipedia page, which is not, you know, scholarly writing at all. (laughs) But I read the Wikipedia page and there was one review that said, it's not at all shocking to today's culture. And I wondered if I had watched it in 2000, would I think, 
oh, this is so bizarre, but maybe it's just because we've had 19 more years of pop culture than this movie has that I'm comparing it to weirder stuff. That's an interesting point. And I, I would say so because it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. Like not only has it been 19 Mm. years, but it's been 19 years of envelope pushing more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, that's true. And that's a perfect, uh, perfect segue into our segment how did this not age well? Social justice, one, two, three. I wanna be PC. It's just the way to be for me and you. And there's a couple ways this didn't age well. There's the, so very baby Maggie Gyllenhaal is in this movie and she plays one of the Sprockets and the Sprockets are the crew that Cecil B. Demented is making this movie with. And they all kind of have their one thing, which was another thing that kind of bothered me was that the character, the sprockets never evolved beyond their one thing. And Maggie Gyllenhaal's character's one thing is that she's a Satanist. But the problem, and I have no problem with that. My problem with her Satanism is that it's very shticky and it's diminutive of the actual religion belief of satanism and it feels just very reductive like she she at one point shrugs and goes it's a satan thing and it just didn't feel like oh this is actually committed to presenting the idea of satanism well right it it, and and i picked up on that as well um and it, it was just it was very strange for me you know this is a guy who has never been afraid to be out there uh, John Waters, I mean, and he's never been afraid to be like realistically inclusive, like more so than the time mm-hmm. period he's in. And and yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character was a complete like family guy caricature of what a Satanist is. And it was it, it rang false to me. And, and yeah, like I've got nothing against Satanists. It's not my cup of tea, but it, it was very weird to have that be an, a, a thing, especially when it didn't need to be. Like, at no point does Maggie Gyllenhaal being a Satanist serve the plot at all. No, it's not like she needs to make a sacrifice at some point to solve anything in the film. It's never, like, a plot point. It's just kind of a gimmick in the way that all of the rest of the sprockets have a gimmick. And that's what didn't land with me. They felt tropey. Sure. I I would agree. Um, I I accepted it from most of the others, mainly because if nothing else, their gimmicks kind of made more sense to me. Um, Mm. Especially Michael Shannon. I'm sorry. Mike. I'm sorry, Shannon. Mike Shannon. <laughs> Mike Shannon. Which is basically like your younger cousin saying he wants to go by a cool nickname. Whatever, Kyle. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, baby Michael Shannon in what had to have been like his 10th film role because he's not even going by Michael Shannon yet. Um, you know, his thing was that he was an openly gay man. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of it was played for comedy, but, and again, especially think back to 2000 when like, we're just kind of finishing the AIDS crisis and, you know, Queer Eye is a couple years from coming on TV. It was definitely a bigger, louder thing to be like an openly homosexual character back then um, for him to just kind of be like, yeah, I'm gay. I'm in love with this other dude. I'm going to absolutely just kind of not even flaunt it in a, in a, in a femme cartoony way, but it's just, I'm gay. Yeah. That was what I appreciated about his role. It wasn't, I'm gay and I like fine cheeses and fancy Hermes scarves. It's just, I'm gay and this is what I do, which I vastly appreciated. Right. Um, I agree completely with what you were saying about the sprockets. For the most point, they were very one note. You've got the druggie. You've got the very damaged porn star. You've got the, the, the chick who has the camera. You've got the sound person. But, oh my God, what a bunch of cameo actors to have. I was like freaking <laughs> out at this. Yeah, there's some names there. Yeah, you've got Adam Grenier from Honorage, Jack Noseworthy from uh, just Event Horizon, and like, like, I I saw his name and I freaked out. Lawrence mm-hmm. Gilliard Jr. from The Wire and The Walking Dead, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and again Mike Shannon, who later would go on to be in The Shape of Water, which is I think the 19 years later weirdness factor (laughs) against which I am holding this movie. So I'm like, it's not weird. No one's having sex with a weird lizard fish man. We're fine. And that one best picture. Oh my gosh. It's so pretty. (laughs) Sorry. I could gush, but I won't. I will continue with saying, speaking of the damaged porn star, the other thing that did not age well in here was Cherish's story of assault felt completely mishandled. It was mishandled by her crewmates as she was talking about it. It felt mishandled in the actual writing of the script. And it was the worst example, I think, of gimmicky plot writing. Turning trauma into gimmick doesn't serve anyone well. And with it, it badly leads to the concept that, of course, you were in porn because you were molested as a child, which hurts sex workers. It hurts everyone, I would say. And it helps no one. So it's just kind of this gimmicky, weird thing that doesn't actually serve the plot in the end. So I didn't really see a point for that. Sure. And and I kind of have to sheepishly admit that pretty much entirely went over my head in my viewing. I like I kind of mentally accepted what I was being told and I didn't stop to really question it. So I'm, I'm glad that you did because that is absolutely having it like spoken back to me, a very messed up and disingenuous aspect of the movie. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause I mean, um, like, like she's the one who brings it up. It's not even, yeah. And, and in a way that's worse. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point that it's worse that she brings it up. And I I mean, I'm all for visibility of trauma victims and assault victims. I'm, I'm for that. But I also feel like if we're going to portray it in movies, it has to be 
with a time and a place and a certain handling of it. And at this point, it just kind of felt like, well, I'm a trauma victim and here's my story being told in a really awful time and place. And I'm not victim blaming. I'm not saying like she should have told it in a better time of place, but it just didn't feel well handled by anyone involved. Yeah, it's just kind of it's kind of thrown out there very matter of fact casually. And yeah, and I think at one point Cecil even says, um, just shut up. Hi. I played you in lots of porno movies. Yeah, so 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 I I will totally say, even though they're one note, I think I liked the Sprockets more than either of our two leads. But I'm curious what you thought of Cecil and Honey. Um, I was here for Cecil. <laughs> <laughs> because, so I will say, so the Sprockets felt one note. There were points where they really worked for me. And it was point, and it was the points where the writing was best in the script. So in the opening scene, I was here for the sprockets because they're shouting into their microphones like "death to major cinema" and "rights for women in film." And I was like, "These people are bizarre," and I love them. <laughs> um, I was here for Cecil because he was so over the top and ridiculous. And unlike you, I liked the ending. Um, I thought all the choices he made, and we'll get to it later, makes sense. Sure. Honey, I had harder time dealing with because, to be honest, it just felt to me like she didn't try very hard to get away. And I think I was like, girl, you're in public. You can run. You can go. You can leave. It's okay. And she never did. And I was like, why? <laughs> well, except she she did at the one point, like, for so so as I'm watching it, Half of the time she's got a gun on her and I can reasonably, I can reasonably go, okay, you're, you're afraid you're going to get shot in the back by these clearly unhinged individuals. There is the scene where they crash the Hollywood East oyster luncheon thing. Um, Which is one of my favorite scenes. (laughs) And, and at the end of that, honey does like find herself on the side with the cops and like, you know, runs over to them and and is saying, I'm Honey Woodlock, I'm Honey Woodlock, I've been kidnapped. And it's when she is, like, treated like the rest of the sprockets and thrown in the cop car Mm -hmm. that I think that's when the the change is supposed to happen. Now, I'll grant you, I don't don't think it's done very well. She, Uh she, it's all just so fast, like, the cops throw her in the car, which... The cops have no reason not to throw her in the back of a patrol car, even if they're even if they don't consider her a criminal. Where else are they going to put her? And within like five minutes, the the sprockets have come up in their van and like re kidnap Honey. But at that point, she Stockholm syndrome slash has been betrayed by the system and. And that's where, like, she makes the change that she's going to see this thing out. That's what I got. You know, I maybe need to rewatch this because <laughs> I did not catch that. I really didn't catch that that was the moment that her, her Stockholm Syndrome happened. Because for me, it felt like it came a lot earlier because she's casually referring to everyone by their first names. She's in a chair and she's not squirming. She just casually hangs out um, and says, no, I don't, 
I think it was when she's offered a drink and she says, no, I don't drink when I'm working. And I was like, girl, you're not working. You were kidnapped. <laughs> so I think maybe I could do for a rewatch, but there were just some moments that I thought, you do not try hard enough to escape. And ultimately I didn't buy in for her until the very end. Sure. Sure. I I, I can absolutely see that. I think it's worth mentioning like this movie exists because John Waters was being interviewed and the uh, person conducting the interview said, well, you're, you're the Cecil B. Demented, aren't you? And he was like, oh, that's a really awesome play on Cecil B. DeMille. I got to use that. How can I use that? Mm. And kind of like, I'm sure he, he, he obviously had his opinions on both big Hollywood and guerrilla filmmaking. And that's where the rest of the movie took place. But like, this wasn't a passion project for John Waters as much as it was like, Oh, thank you for that title. I'm going to go build a movie around it now. And the other thing that's, built around which i didn't know but um patricia hurst suffered a um 1974 kidnapping and she became internationally known for her her kidnapping and her physical violation by the domestic american terrorist group known as this uh symbionese liberation army and by the time she was found she was a fugitive wanted for serious crimes And it kind of echoes nicely with Honey's, like, how quickly she jumps in and just becomes, okay, I need to do this. And I need need to take part in this movie. So maybe, you know, maybe after knowing that, I could also forgive Honey for how quickly she just kind of becomes part of the crew. Maybe. And, and like, like I said, I, I don't think this demands your forgiveness the reason i enjoyed it is because i i found it genuinely funny um more than anything else and and i and i don't think it's a poorly done movie but it's definitely not the most well-written thing we've come across (laughs) but you know i i love john waters's weird for weirdness sake humor like why is yeah. there the kid with the oxygen tank in the award gala because john waters <laughs> because john waters why is the chick pulling a shotgun shell out of her weave because john waters, because john waters. <laughs> why does honey demand that her assistant call and see if a president has had sex in this room because john waters it's chinatown jake <laughs> Uh, I love you. <laughs> Speaking of that opening scene, Honey Whitlock at the beginning of this movie has the haircut that I will definitely have when I'm in my 50s. <laughs> I love that. Like that cute little curved under situation. So as a redhead, like I was here for the beginning of Honey. I was like, you look like Gina Davis and I'm here for this. Sure. I think that'll look very nice on you. Oh, thank you. 50-year-old me is pretty pumped. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Gina Davis, we were trying to figure out who Honey was supposed to be a representation of, and and that was your guess, right? Yeah, it was Gina Davis, because I was like, she's been in movies, but I never feel like Gina Davis had her, like, 
moment that she could have had. Yeah, I could see that. I was I was trying to think Holly Hunter, but like this okay, this yeah. was this was a little before I was really paying attention to Hollywood actresses, so I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. True confession, I'm looking up Holly Hunter right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, for anyone also unfamiliar, I think she's most famous now for being Mrs. Incredible. She's Elastigirl. That's right, that's right, Elastigirl. <laughs> yes. Um, which later, Andy, I want to have a discussion with you about Incredibles 2 and how good of a movie it is, but we'll save that for off mic. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, this made me feel very Rocky Horror-esque. Am I alone in that? that so, I love that take. I didn't, like, mm. pick that up at all, but you, you told me that after watching the movie, and I think it absolutely works. It's weird. It's overtly sexual. So, one of the things, if you skip the movie, one of the things that... Uh, Cecil B. Demented and the crew of the Sprockets do is that they abstain from sex until they have finished their film. And then in the ending scene of the film, they have a giant multiple people having sex in public. I wouldn't say it's an orgy because it's not people having sex with each other. It's couples. (laughs) I was going to bring up that exact point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's multiple people having sex in public at the end because they've all decided they're finished with their movie and this is what they get to do at the end. So there's this like pent up sexual energy throughout the whole movie. At one point, um, Cecil licks a very full camera. There is one point where Honey has to change and they throw a costume at her and they're like, change. And she looks around and kind of insinuates, oh, she's going to change in front of all these people. And there's very odd moaning in the background. There's a moment where they walk into a porno movie film theater. So it's very sexual in a similar Rocky horror way that like, this is what builds the tension. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you say that and it makes total sense in hindsight. It's just a couple of, you know, music numbers away and, and, you know, the endings are um, remarkably similar too. And maybe yeah. maybe this is where we get into the ending because I'm about to spoil it. But you know, and and also Rocky Horror spoilers, I I guess. <laughs> but, I guess if you haven't seen Rocky Horror, why are you yeah, listening? Pause, to our pause show? the show and go watch it. <laughs> um, if you want to be a cult aficionado, go watch Rocky Horror and then come back. If you want to be a happier person, go watch Rocky Horror. Anyway. <laughs> Both movies end with the majority of the main cast, our heroes, going down in a hail of bullets slash laser beam fire. So, yeah, it took you saying it for me to really pick up on it. But I think that was an absolute, like, not even a, is it a hot take if it's accurate? I don't know. Good take. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I am Cecil B. Demented, and this is a fucking kidnapping. But I, I think, yeah, there's there's the ending where the main character that we've been quasi-rooting for yeah. throughout the movie dies. And the main female character that you've been rooting for throughout most of the movie gets to walk away, but at what cost? 
And there's been a whole lot of weird stuff in between. Yeah, and okay, so so to dial back a moment, like the Sprockets, what they are doing is they are going around quote unquote guerrilla filmmaking. And 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 that's half right. What they do is guerrilla filmmaking, you know, live on location, no acting. I don't know if the one take thing is like an actual tenet of guerrilla filmmaking or not, but you know, no, no retakes. It's all live. It's all happening. Learn your lines and, and go. Um, and mm. they literally drive around Baltimore armed to the teeth, breaking into movie theaters and, and, and film related things, shooting up the place spouting a bunch of anti-big Hollywood rhetoric and getting it all on camera. And from about halfway in the movie, they start getting picked off. And something that just bothered me about the movie before getting into the ending is how almost none of the sprockets are mourned as they go down. Mm. Yeah. The first, the, the first guy is, is again in the oyster luncheon scene. It's, it's Jack Noseworthy's character, the straight hairdresser who is making out with Michael Shannon because he's so sexually frustrated. Like he gets two in the chest and Mike Shannon's character like screams, no, but nobody else bats an eyelash throughout the movie. The only member of the Sprockets who's like mourned it all is the character of Dinah, who I just want to touch on real quick. I couldn't find anything. I'm like, I'm like going on a tangent within a tangent. I know, but like I couldn't find anything to corroborate this, but because it's John Waters, I'm pretty sure that was an actual trans person playing the character. And I think that's good. That's wonderful. Yeah. Here's to making your trans characters actually trans. Exactly. Back in 2000. Which is, which is huge. And I will say, so one of the things I loved about the Sprockets is that half of them are female and not all of the female Sprockets are overtly sexualized. Like Cherish is overtly sexualized and that's her character and that's a whole other thing. But like you have a lesbian Sprocket who's not like, Oh, she's a lesbian. Let's overly sexualize her. She's just a lesbian and that's it. Yeah, something you can so. something you can definitely count on Waters to do at any point in his career um is 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 proper um sexual representations, I feel like. Yeah. But for sure. So so you've got sprockets going down left and right, and like the only ones that are mourned at all was Dinah and I don't even think Cherish was mourned as much as um, the character who was the cinematographer, whose name I I don't remember, and I don't think it's going to be that bad of a thing that I don't remember. But like, no, case in point, I forgot the Cherish died. <laughs> there you go. Okay, okay. So this gets us into the ending. The ending. They they finish the movie. They're in the drive-through. They're having their big sex party, and. Cherish is on top of Cecil riding. Yes, him she is. And gets a yes. headshot. I forgot that. I'm sorry to remind you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Other point for people who wanted to skip the movie but want to know everything about it, when Cherish is shot in the head and when she falls off of Cecil, there's a horrible popping noise that's made Yeah, there's... to imply her vagina popped when she came off of Cecil. <laughs> right. I was going to call it a squelch, but a pop also works. Oh! <laughs> But 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 so that's my point. Like like she takes one in the head, and all he all Cecil does is kind of push her off him. Somebody else gets shot, and Cecil like 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 cries out for them, and then Honey is about to be shot. Honey is about to be taken down, and Cecil decides he is going to self-immolate, and. Mm gets in a wheelchair, pours gasoline on himself and, and has Lawrence Gilliard Jr. light him on fire so he can rush at the cop and take the cop out and, and die. And mm-hmm. at this point in the film is where our opinions really diverge. I thought this was so out of left field and so out of character. It really, it really took me out. That's so funny, because I, so, hmm, most direct way to go to this. So one of the things that I appreciate about Cecil is that he's the perfect cult leader. Sure. And as the perfect cult leader, one of the things that he says time and time again is that we're a family, we're a family, we're a family. And we are kind of three musketeers all for one, one for all, but also I'm your director. And what I say goes. So... I loved him self-immolating because it was him leaving that role, that role of like, I'm kind of above you. I like, yes, we're one for one for all and all for one, but I'm better than you. He left that to save honey. And I was like, that is a more interesting choice for me um, for him to self-immolate because it's suddenly you're right. It's completely out of character, but I wasn't upset about it. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense, and, and it's completely fair. I think it's interesting. I use interesting so much. I'm trying to expand my lexicon, guys. I think that's okay. I say like so much, and I'm like, how? Oh, I'm like, how much can you sound like a California Valley girl? I appreciate your difference <laughs> in opinion. My biggest problem was for the entire movie. Cecil's chief motivation is this auteur high art form, this, this in mm. his eyes, at least true, perfect movie. Mm. And at the end of the, at the end of Cecil be demented, there's no way that movie's getting made because Cecil killed himself. And, and yeah, like somebody got the movie footage and like got in a car and escaped, but I don't trust any of the sprockets to like get that thing developed. So Ah. my thing was if Cecil's ultimate goal was to make the movie, then just because you're done filming, you're, you're not done. You still have to distribute it. And uh, I I just couldn't accept that Cecil wouldn't wait until that thing had been watched by someone. And then if he kills himself, I can kind of understand that. And if he had this change of heart moment, which after hearing you talk about it, maybe he did. 
I didn't get that enough. So that that was my real big problem. I don't trust the Sprockets, who are all pretty nuts in their own right, to get this <laughs> movie made. And sure, I don't buy, in a movie which is about filmmaking, I don't buy that it was enough to just make the movie and not actually have anyone see it. So that's my thing. One of the things I appreciate most about our friendship, Andy, <laughs> are all the conversations we have about why we enjoy the art and media that we do. And you are very good about expressing what you love about why you love it. And one of the things I appreciate about you is that you have very defined guidelines you would like the artists whose media you stick to to follow for example you've said in your other podcast love hate relationship shout out to love hate relationship (laughs) that your pet peeve with george rr martin is that he hasn't committed to his art form fully one of the things that i understand about cecil being like well the thing is made He kind of states, I I feel, perhaps non-verbally, Cecil is saying, the film is made as much as I want it to be made. The film is captured, and I'm fine with leaving it here. Um, Because one of the things I feel about art is that it's very daunting to take the piece of art from creation and it being done-ish to taking it to a place where other people see it. And maybe that's something that I'm projecting onto Cecil, but maybe he's saying in this moment, I don't actually want to watch people watch it. I don't actually want to see it public. Because one of the things that's terrifying about being an artist is you can write a poem and when it's in your possession, it means exactly what you want it to mean. And then it gets published in the New Ohio Review and you go, well, that means whatever the reader means it to mean. And it's no longer mine. It's everyone else's. And that's horrifying. And exciting, but horrifying at the same time. Sure. That was uh, that was oddly specific. Do, uh, do I need to go beat up the Ohio Review? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I have a poem upcoming from them that means a very specific thing to me. And I'm excited and nervous. So um, it's, it's exciting that it's coming out in the world, but I think in the same way, I think Cecil would be scared to see what his movie means to other people. And again, I could be wildly projecting and putting what I need to put into this movie to have someone else feel that way in the universe. That's extremely <laughs> possible. No, it's not a sad thing. It's just an artist thing. <laughs> well, sure. But... That's kind of why I was here for his ending, because I thought maybe he isn't ready to have the world see it. I am very glad we came to this disagreement, because I think that that is a very good challenge to my take and and what mm. I walked away with. And I, I, I'm dead serious. I, I like that you took away something so opposite because mm. I don't know. I, I, I like, I, I like 
discussion and and I think you've made some really very good points that I did not stop to consider because I'm maybe I was projecting my own way where like the thing I like about creativity and any creative medium is the affectation. We've, we've talked about this before. That's my favorite thing about it is knowing that I made you feel that way, whatever I made you feel with my piece of art. And yeah, so maybe I was projecting onto Cecil of like, how could you not stop to see what happens with this thing? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I've heard your George R. R. Martin rant. So I, I know that something that bothers you is when artists don't fully commit to their art. And I'm, I'm there with you. Once you put it out into the world, you have to be committed to it being out in the world. Yeah. And so one of the things I appreciate about Cecil is he's like, well, I'm not ready for it to be out. So maybe I'll never be ready. Sure. And we got to come back to it. Why does Cecil self-immolate in a wheelchair and turn himself into projectile? Who knows? Because it's John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Cecil B. Demented and you're in my movie. You look in the camera and Runa take, you're dead. Do you know Quentin Tarantino? I love his movies. No ad living. Ah! Well, and to save honey, he saves right. honey. No, absolutely, absolutely. Which, oh, well, which is nice. I guess that's my other thing that, like, we're like, like he could have done that without lighting himself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, he probably could have. Um, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, that was that was my initial thought. Was like, you're going a little excessive here, bud. You're, there's there's no way, and and getting into the meta, he could have just been written to not get shot, <laughs> but he was written to yeah. light himself on fire. Ah. But can you see Cecil doing anything that's not over the top? That's a very good point. It is so in his character to be the person who I need to save my crew member. How do I do so? I will light myself aflame. Yeah. And like, cause he kind of like gives the guy a look and is like, yeah, let's do this. So yeah, yeah. he knew what he was doing. That That's another really good point. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the end of the movie, I am here for honey taking her glory walk to the cop car. Yeah. That was a good moment. Looking at, looking at everyone who absolutely adores her. I think that was the one moment in her arc where I was just absolutely understanding everything that she was going through because here's this woman who for her entire career has just wanted to be loved and adored and she's finally got it. Yeah. It it was hard for me to empathize with honey. Um, but oh, I could, sure. I could see from the word go from her first scenes when she's being such an awful person to her assistant and everyone else around her were meant to watch her go from being a bad person or at least a mean person to, to, to go upwards and, and to have a rising arc like that. Um, and I, I did appreciate that moment just like you did. I think it's similar I think my major problems with this movie is similar to Showgirls, where it's not the acting, it's not the costumes, it's not the sets, because their glittery, weird grunge palace is fantastic. (laughs) But there is something between the way the script is written 
and the way the acting direction is given that throws me about honey that I can't I can't I can't square until that last scene when she's walking to the cop car and waving to her adoring fans. And that's fair. You know, I started this by saying maybe this was the perfect Waters film to start on. And and in a way, maybe it was because what I was what I meant was it's it's a very middle ground. You know, this isn't Mm -hmm. Pink Flamingos, which is one of his first films, which is an actual like guerrilla film and famously has um, a drag queen eat a real piece of dog shit. Oh, <gasps> ew. <laughs> and it's also not hairspray, which... Which is so safe. <laughs> it's so safe. When when hairspray got a PG rating, John Waters was quoted being like, frankly, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, yeah. In that way, I thought it would be kind of the perfect middle ground, but maybe the middle ground isn't something Waters is very good in. He's got to be all the way weird or all the way toned back. You know, that's why I love Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Because he just, he is ready for the weird and doesn't go anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, but it's so wonderful. <laughs> I know. I know. I love him. I think that's that's very fair. And I would not have thought to compare the two directors, but maybe that's kind of a very obvious comparison because neither of them have been... Like, I, I feel like the only real distinction, Waters will go weird for the sake of weird. Like He's definitely mm-hmm. the guy like wearing a, a pink suit and having a picket sign that says keep Baltimore weird on the street corner. And Guillermo del Toro is very much like weird for the sake of life is a beautiful, horrifying fantasy tale. Here are all the ways that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, John Waters looks like Steve Buscemi with a face job. Oh my God. You're right. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. if you google john waters you'll think he's john buscemi with a better face and and thinner eyebrows that is what john waters looks like yeah yeah that's a look (laughs) (laughs) it's a whole thing (laughs) oh and he has a very thin pencil mustache yes the pencil stash is is everything I'm ashamed of my heterosexuality. Oh, it's all right, Rodney. That's why some days I gotta hurt people. (laughs) So, Andy, do you have any um, stray observations about this movie you want to talk about? Um, Yeah, we we just, we've talked about how this isn't the riskiest Waters movie, but it's important to say after after saying that this is a movie in which a porn star gets a gerbil shoved in her butt poor pellet <laughs> and like it's in the the porno movie within the movie and fortunately like it's done off screen but i i 
think and I think I hope that that is the uh, most disturbing thing we will see for a while in this little show of ours. God, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, the only other thing, you know, we don't we don't really go on the IMDb goofs page, but mm-hmm. just a little bit behind the podcast, like I, I tend to look at the trivia for everything, and there was so little trivia for this movie that I decided to look at the goofs, and there is a phenomenal moment of internet pedantry. Um, mm-hmm. So there's the scene where Honey is kidnapped from the movie theater by the Sprockets, and they take a left out of the 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 real whatever it's called theater in Baltimore like like all of this was on location and meant to accurately be the city of Baltimore so uh-huh. they take a left out of the theater and you see in the next shot they drive past a Wendy's <laughs> okay somebody i don't know who saw this and got really upset and needed to make sure the internet knows you would only see that Wendy's if you took a right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Calm down, Baltimore residents. It's okay. It's going to be okay. You're going to get the wire in like four years. It's fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's hilarious. Um, thing, Random thing that bothered me. Fidget's mother does not seem at all excited to be talking to her son. Like, three weeks after she hasn't talked to him at all, she picks up the phone. Hello. (laughs) This is a woman who every phone call should be hoping it's her son because her son disappeared three weeks ago. And then she hears her son's voice and she's like, Fidget, where are you? I've missed you so much. Her deadpan acting, I'm like, "Mm, mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah, (laughs) that was weird. That's, um, so that actress is Patricia Hurst. And she is one of two <gasps> actresses in this movie who is in every single John Waters movie. So Patricia Hurst was the woman who was kidnapped. Oh, you're right. In like ah. real life. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible human. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible person and I'm going to hell. <laughs> Well, does it make her performance any different now? (laughs) No, but I'm mean. I shouldn't make fun of someone who got kidnapped. Eh. (laughs) Eh. And then my only other stray observation is that Honey at the end of the movie looks like Cruella DeVille. She does. It's really, I think it's the burned bleach blonde hair. It, It really is. But I was like, between Cruella DeVille and Cecil DeMille and Cecil B. Demented, I was like... Is this is this on purpose somehow? Is this intentional? But I didn't think so. If it is, John Waters. John Waters. John <laughs> Waters is why. <laughs> so yeah, I, I know we're we're getting towards our uh, our kind of lightning round of things we'd like to do. I would like to propose a new segment to you, Stephanie, for the show. Ooh! I thought Fun. this movie was so funny. And so totally quotable. There are numerous lines that are just amazing. And I thought we could tell each other and our uh, hopefully blossoming listening audience (laughs) our favorite quotes. Sure, sure. I love that. Do you want to start? Yeah. So so mine, 
Um, there is, I think, the scene where they are driving to the first shooting location, and it's it's the whole Sprocket crew, and they're all interrogating Honey about her being a big star, and somebody's like, "Oh, did you sleep with Mel Gibson?" And Michael Shannon's character, Pete, like he picks up on this and he's the one driving and he's just like, he keeps looking back and he's screaming, tell me about Mel Gibson's dick and balls. <laughs> Perfect. So good. Cause this, this is before, you know, he's gay. I think this is before Mel Gibson was like Mel Gibson. <laughs> Anti-Semitic. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that. Okay. And, you know, misogynistic and just altogether awful. Just a terrible human. Um, yeah, and just, just the fact that it's a young Michael Shannon screaming, tell me about Mel Gibson's dick and balls. I am entirely here for this. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Um, my favorite line was when the cast and crew are shooting and someone, I'm not quite actually sure, I think it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. <laughs> says, I haven't had this much fun since my last livestock mutilation. I had to pause the movie because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. It just reminded me of um, Parks and Rec and April's really weird friend, Oren, who says just the most bizarre stuff and something on that just lit up my brain cells. Sure. No, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of bests, do we want to give out our Oscars? Yeah, let's go for it. Excellent. I would like to award this movie, John Waters, Cecil B. Demented, the Oscar for Best Opening Credits. I am a total junkie for when films use something really bizarre to represent their names. It's one of my favorite things. Like, I recently watched Incredibles 2 on Netflix, and I love how... They presented their in their closing credits, like each different, the lighting crew is represented by a bright light shining and different things like that. So Cecil B. Demented has some of the best opening credits where everybody's names are on falling apart signs. And I was so here for that because it set the mood so completely. Sure. And that's not something you really see in like live action movies anymore. I don't think. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I, I, I definitely picked up on that too. Um, it, and it tells you this movie is going to be about filmmaking when, when everyone's names are coming up in like like theater title card sequence. Yeah, it lets you know this is going to be a weird, bizarre movie that's a love letter to film. Yeah. <laughs> a weird love letter. Maybe a love letter where we tell you we're going to chop out your tongue, but a love letter. All the best love letters have tongue mutilation. I don't know. Isn't that in one of the sonnets? I'm worried about you and Moe's relationship. <laughs> so kind of like yours, uh, my Oscar also has to do with a, 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 a part of this that is a love letter. Um, I would like to give Cecil B. Demented the Oscar for best rap song about filmmaking. Oh yeah. Yeah. There it, it's it's the I think the second time we're in like the the abandoned theater warehouse that the Sprockets live in. They're they're doing their downtime and a couple of the characters are like singing and working a turntable and there's this 
just very, very specific rap song that is talking about craft services and, and the, the minutia of, of filmmaking. And I just, I got such a big, delightful, dumb grin on my face as soon as I like heard what was actually being sung here. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, do you want to play our favorite game? It's my favorite game. Why wouldn't I? Yes. Okay. For those of you who are just tuning into our podcast, every episode we play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with the movie that we are currently viewing. So for my Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, I started with the lovely Honey, a.k.a. Melanie Griffith who was in Lolita with Frank Langella, who was in Frost Nixon with Kevin Bacon. Ooh. Ooh, I did it in two. Andy, can you beat me? Uh, <laughs> so we were talking about it a little earlier, and I encouraged you to not look at mine. Um, oh, no. Did you do it in one? you did it because... Uh, Mike Shannon, going by Michael this time, was in The Woodsman with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <gasps> no! Boom, baby! <laughs> oh, foolish Stephanie. Oh, no. Get your life together. <laughs> oh, man. That is a really, that's a really good play, my man. Good job. I think that's the first one move we've had so far so i was kind of happy to have figured it out i'm impressed wait what's the woodsman about um a person who may or may not be a pedophile gets back from prison to the, his old neighborhood and like for for reasons that are not made entirely clear halfway through the movie like is kind of living across from his old school and it's it's basically a big thriller mystery over whether or not Kevin Bacon is a pedophile. And oh, um, so a movie that I would never have seen. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> I have respect for myself. Um, but Michael Shannon is his therapist slash social worker guy. Um, uh... So. Well, it sounds like a good movie now that I'm a human adult who could handle such things. <laughs> I was about to say, wait, so does this mean that I don't have self-respect because I've seen The Woodsman? <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, what movie are we watching next week? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> um, so yeah, for anyone who hasn't caught on by now and decided to listen to a movie they had never heard of because frankly we had never heard of this movie for your first episode of cult fiction uh what we like to do is let hollywood's collective cult unconscious decide our movies through the application of a random number generator so um after the last episode you discovered that i was like stockpiling a list of movies i hadn't added to the list but wanted to and but didn't tell me about it didn't tell you about <laughs> and you encouraged <laughs> me just to throw them all up there so i did so our uh, list has shot up to 317 movies good god good thing i like you yeah 
<laughs> and now I am going to select the next one. So we have number 300 and no, I'm sorry, 113. And which is okay. Uh, have you watched Russian Doll yet? No, I haven't, but I've heard lovely things. Real quick, everyone, and you, Stephanie, Russian Doll is phenomenal. It is the best, like, new show of 2019, and you can watch the whole thing in a day. It's on Netflix. Check out Russian Doll. Uh I bring up Russian Doll because the next movie we will be watching stars Natasha Lyonne. It is (gasps) 2000s, but I'm a cheerleader. (gasps) I'm so excited. So from John Waters into a coming-of-age LGBT uh, comedy, the, the the Hollywood crypt does not let us down. It, it decides our themes for I'm so, us. I'm so excited. I am too. Um, yeah, so I highly recommend doing uh, watching this. At time of recording, it can be found on 2BTV, just like Cecil B. Demented. Yes. Um, yes. And yeah... Oh, I'm so. so excited. I have seen this before, and I am eager for a rewatch. Oh, I have not seen this. Okay. You have... Oh. Oh, Andy, it has Rufio in it. Yay! Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we're sent to conversion camp for 2000s But I'm a Cheerleader. For Andy Bowell, I've been Stephanie Johnson. Okay, what can what can we say? Oh. Oh, because I'm a cheerleader. But I'm a cheerleader. Is it too dark to say where we get sent to conversion camp? Oh, <gasps> no. Dark. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm here for that. <laughs> okay, done. <laughs>